0: Hey, y'all, from NPR, it's been a minute. I'm Sam Sanders. Every week, we have a conversation with one person or on one topic. This week, journalist Ann Curry. She is out with a new show Tuesdays on PBS. It is called We'll Meet Again, and it focuses on finding and reuniting people who have had brief, deep bonds at some time or another during their lives. So, Anne has been a journalist for 40 years. She spent 15-plus years working on NBC's Today Show. So, I had to ask her what it was like to work there with Matt Lauer. Lauer was fired last year amid sexual harassment allegations. And, you might recall, Anne Curry was forced out of her job co-anchoring that show about five years ago because execs at NBC reportedly thought that she and Lauer lacked on-screen chemistry. There's a lot in this conversation. Uh, and Curry goes deep. Enjoy it. I have watched um, a few of the episodes of your new series, and I feel like in the kind of news cycles that we've been in, it's so heartening to see some feel-good.
1: Oh, thanks for saying. We're getting that kind of feedback. It's something that we weren't thinking about, you know. um, But it started to arise when we were on location um, inside a veterans museum. And the man with the keys who was sort of waiting for us to finish shooting uh, was a retired general. And as he watched us shoot the story, he pulled me aside and said, we really need to see this right now. Mm. And while I can't verbalize what he meant by that, what I took that to say was that we sort of are forgetting about uh, something about what we're made of. We're forgetting what we're made of, and yes. we're forgetting how good we are. And yeah. um, so the series seems to be reminding people.
0: And it's so, it's, it's so needed right now. And I think so much of our politics at the moment has allowed us to kind of believe that people we don't like or people we disagree with or people that aren't where we're from, it allows us to believe that they aren't quite as human as we are.
1: Well, I think that um, connection, actually, is the thing we want the most. Yeah. We are um, made to want to connect. We are the most social of the—probably we're the most social of the uh, human species, or we would not be the only one that still exists. There is something—I think I would say that our greatest wish is to connect with others and, and, and yeah. to love. And this thing is what we're missing in this time, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Walk me through the creation story of the series. Um, you just mentioned that museum moment. But was there a day when you or someone on your team woke up and said, let's do this? You know, how would it come to be?
1: Um, it started actually with my co-executive producer, a woman named Justine Kershaw, mm-hmm. who, um, as a young woman, had fallen off a mountain. She had been hiking uh, and she was in Europe. She was a dancer and mm. she ripped you know, so much of herself up. I mean, her she was really um, hurt by this oh, no. fall, and there were a couple of men who were, I believe, they were goat herders, and they were sort of happened by and they they rescued her. They carried her down the mountain. They made sure she got to care. And then years later, after she had no longer um, been dancing, and she now was a wife and she had children, she decided that she wanted to go back to this mountain. Yeah, there was something kind of meaningful for her about it. So she went back to the mountain, and she ran into, not expecting to, uh, the goat herders. Mm. And what really stunned her was their reaction. Really, they started sobbing, and really, really were just so glad to see her, and so glad to see how well she was doing because they never heard what happened after yeah. she had left on that emergency exit, you know, to a hospital yeah, to sort yeah. of patch her back up. So this sort of had been a part of her, realizing Mm -hmm. that there was this need for people to connect um, when in these kinds of moments, and not just the person who was hurt, but the person on the other side. And so fast forward many, many years, this thing Mm -hmm. had been percolating. She had this kind of rough idea
0: about, well, what if we
1: did something like that? And it kind of evolved to what it is today.
0: Yeah, and it is a sight to behold. I, You know, the first episode is so powerful. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but the first episode deals – with uh, two stories from World War II. Uh, one young woman who was sent to a Japanese internment camp and another young man uh, who had to flee and uh, was in a kind of concentration camp in Shanghai. Um, That's right. How do you find he, he these fled, people? Yeah. Oh, oh, he fled ahead. Berlin. He, yeah.
1: was, uh, he could remember yeah. Uh He was uh, um, a German Jew whose father was an intellectual and... You know the Nazis were cracking down on intellectuals, uh, as we know, and the Christ- and and Kristallnacht was devastating to Jews all over um, Germany, and um, so they didn't have really technically a passport because um, Hitler had stamped um, their passports with a big J on yeah. it, and it meant that they were stateless, so they couldn't travel. Yeah. And Shanghai was one of the few places. In fact, at that. Point in 1939, it was the only place they could go. It was an open port; you could come in without a passport. Mm. And he he wanted to find uh, someone who, who had helped him survive emotionally, um, a man and his family who basically took him in, and became surrogate parents. Yeah, but to find these people to answer your question you know, you know, it's just uh, shoe leather reporting. You know, it's just basically going to the sites where people go looking for people and organizations. And, and with the internet, there are so many ways to connect. And, and yet it's still impossible, especially when when you don't have enough information. And some of our stories, people are looking for people. They don't even know the name of the yeah, person that they're looking for. or if they're for. still living. Correct. Uh, whether they're still living. So it's a real labor of love to do that kind of research. And it's, it's it's so and I think that's what makes it so powerful,
0: yeah,, what I appreciate with it is that as you have as you allow these people or or follow them as they try to track down these folks, you don't do the legwork for them. It would be very easy for a production team as good as yours and a journalist as good as you just to say. We found them. Come in the room and sit down and talk. You have them hunt themselves and you have them look themselves and you and you walk us through that process. And it is a really good reminder in this age of internet, you know, we think that anything can be found with a Google search. Actually, no. Actually, there's some legwork involved.
1: You know, it's, it's like, sometimes as genealogical experts you need yeah. it's uh, um librarians, uh, historians um, and you can start to see <clears throat> the sites where people can find information but yeah, you know, you think that these days you could find anything but you, you actually can't and and also especially when there has been the passage of time but in most of these cases it's been a real joy that they've let us watch the process and there's one uh, episode about a a woman who's looking for the man who's rescued her from Mount St. Helens. And she was out hiking with a bunch of friends. They were all young people in their early, you know, 19, 20 years old. And they were not in an area that was deemed dangerous. They were mm-hmm. just hiking uh, mm-hmm. for a period of time when the, all of a sudden the mountain uh, blew. And it was so devastating because the ash cloud and the heat all came right towards their campsite. Mm. And some of them were mowed down by trees and some of them did not survive and some of them were so injured that they couldn't leave but but she could, Sue could and so she hiked out even though um, one of her friends begged her said please don't leave me behind please Mm. don't leave me behind and she knew she had to because Mm -hmm. there was no other way that anyone could find them and she did and when she finally got out the helicopter she could hear a sound of a helicopter and the helicopter pilot landed You know, this very kind helicopter pilot sort of tried to take her onto the helicopter and she Mm -hmm. stopped and she said, I won't get on this helicopter until you promise me you'll help me find my friends. You'll go back and find my friends. Well, the helicopter pilot was a Vietnam vet. Who was had volunteered to come help rescue people. He was a member of the National Guard, but he could not be ordered in because the ash was still coming. Mm. It was still too dangerous. You could not mm. order people to their death, so they they could not be orders. Only volunteers who came out on there and they were flying under the ash clouds that were still emerging from the mountain to go find people who were who were caught in it. Yeah, and he promised her, huh. and she got on the helicopter, and she said the moment changed when he kept his promise, and he turned the nose of that helicopter Mm. towards the mountain. He had kids. He had a wife. And Mm. that's what he did, that heroism. And he helped her find her friends. And that completely changed her life.
0: It's beautiful. Now, if I understand correctly, there is a reunion story in your own family. Uh, Your father was in the Navy and met your mother in Japan. He was there when the U.S. occupied Japan after World War II. But then they spent two years apart,
1: right. Um, he um was refused um permission to marry wow. a Japanese woman. I mean, on one hand, you you know, you need to understand it was you know, it was right after the war mm-hmm. and and all of that and and the Japanese were the enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and on top of that, he was eighteen years old. It was harder, of course, for him to understand it because the the his commanding officer used some uh, racial yeah. uh, epithets in telling him why he shouldn't marry. Uh, This Japanese woman. But then he sent him almost immediately uh, on another assignment, or gave him orders to essentially be on aboard a ship uh, that was patrolling uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And so they weren't able to see each other for. Uh, two years. Oh, uh, my dad kept trying to get back and kept submitting uh, papers. And finally, he was sent back and he checked in with the commanding officers his new commanding officer in Japan, and took the long train ride up to Yamagata, where my mother's family were uh, rice farmers for some 400, at least 400 years. Uh, and, and, you know, so she's up there and, and he knocks on this door of this thatched roof farmhouse and this little Japanese elderly woman, my mother's mother, answered the door and uh, her father and they're screaming because my dad was a six foot three green eyed, big mm. American white guy from, you know, Pueblo, Colorado. And <laughs> and um, my mother comes running in from the back room. And you'd think that this was where the story ends and it was a happy reunion. Mm. But like so many people, um, there was an enduring you know, suffering. My mother had contracted tuberculosis, and she had been given a terminal diagnosis, and she was now dying and had come home to die. So now at this point, you could marry a a, a Japanese person, Mm -hmm. um, but you couldn't marry a sick one. Mm. And so my dad convinced my mother's sister to take the required X-ray that he had to carry to the U.S. Navy to say, I'm marrying a healthy Japanese woman. And he lied to the U.S. Navy. And then he married the woman he loved, even though he knew she was dying. And then the real kicker of the story is that because she was now a part of his family, he worked to save her life. Mm. And he went and found finally a doctor who was willing to, because she was really uh, sick. Oh, man. Um willing to give it a try, and then she went under the knife and they took out ninety percent of one of her lungs and he had to nurse her back to health and he had to bring down her mother from the farmhouse to help nurse yeah. her back to health and her mother did not want her to marry this big American <laughs> white guy you know she was like, you know I, you know you'd come home, I don't want him to take me, you away mm-hmm. from me and and she so she'd never accepted the marriage. she didn't give her approval, which was really tough on the couple I'm sure and so but one morning this elderly japanese woman woke up and my mother's my mother had been bathed uh, and she had been um fed and her hair had been combed and it wasn't until this japanese elderly woman went down to go put on her boots to you know walk through the mud to go to the grocery store walk through the rain and noticed that all the mud had been scrubbed mm. from the prior day from her boots mm. by my father of course wow he had done all this that she that she ran to my mother's side and put her hands together in prayer and begged her for forgiveness and said, please, please forgive me. Uh, How could I not approve this marriage? uh, How could a man ever love a woman this much? uh, And she saw my father, not for this big American white guy, yeah. Uh, status that she had before. She saw him as a human being, mm. someone who could love another human being, her daughter, this much. And of course, my mother forgave her, and uh, they, she, my mother, after about six months, rose from her bed and um, became a plump and healthy. And I am the oldest of their five children, wow. and that is a legacy. So, yeah, I'm, I, I, I grew up with that story. My mother would say, "Anna, we were like a Romeo and Juliet, the Japanese side <laughs>
0: Time for a break. In a minute, Ann talks about stories that are being undercovered in
2: the news right now. BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash minute. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
1: Do you love trivia, puzzles, nerdy games, and humor? What about interviews with actors, musicians, and people from all walks of life? Yeah? Then join me, Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: So doing this uh, series now, it's not early morning TV. It's not daily news. It's not breaking news. Are the hours nicer <laughs> than what you've yeah, been used I, to before?
1: It, it, so much, you know. I, yeah. I, I actually wake up and and see the alarm clock set, set you know reading seven a.m. and I'm absolutely delighted. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, sometimes I get to sleep in even later. I mean, it's just That's like awesome. uh, fantastic. And I think you know, um, you know, you, we we go through a lot for what we do. Uh, mm-hmm. We're willing to. In journalism, it's been such a, a long love affair. Now, almost it's moving up towards forty years now wow. that I've been working at it. And you you give so much, you know. You you risk your life sometimes. Oh, yeah. You you um it you know uh, you go without sleep for days, weeks sometimes on some mm-hmm. of these stories and on assignment. That um that yeah these little things, little things like being able to sleep and being on a, on a normal person's schedule is such a delight.
0: Do you find yourself in the crazy news moment America is in right now, wanting to be back in a newsroom, back in the thick of it, covering politics, covering the day-to-day of the Trump White House? Or are you like, no, I'm good?
1: (laughs) I think that um, if there is one thing that's uh, been a theme for me, I I tend to focus – if a story is covered, Mm -hmm. unless it's not covered well Mm – I turn my attention to those that are not covered, yeah. and we are not covering many, many stories, yeah. because there's so much air being sucked up by
0: a few. What's the biggest story in your mind right now that is going way too undercovered?
1: I think the story of the Rohingya is woefully mm. undercovered. It is mm. a story. I think that um, the the line for me that should never be unreported is the stories are the stories of what could be, what smells like, what probably is genocide. genocide. I think yeah. genocide is the line that if, if there is a reason for journalism to exist, yeah. it is yeah. to make sure we cover that story. And I, I, it was a big lesson for me when I discovered the Holocaust uh, yeah. as a young person and discovered by reading, just by, by how I read about it, and just that was enough to, to shock me um, about the, uh, the suffering of the Jewish people. And what I couldn't really get was how do they how do they rise how do they stand yeah. up again and yeah. and what is it that, that that teaches us and and so that that is one reason why I have tried to focus on those who are not heard
0: yeah so you've been in the industry 40 years you're saying how do we as an industry keep getting it wrong and not covering some of the stories that should be covered and what's the fix you know i think a lot of times we think that things get better with time and we learn lessons from previous mistakes but in many ways the mistake of not covering the right stories is still happening all the time today as a journalist um how do we fix that
1: well i think that's a big question because <laughs> it's about motivation right yeah. i mean uh i think journalism has always been fraught and just to kind of lay it down you know it's not like mathematics where there's only one answer so mm-hmm. you're trusting a bunch of Student, people who are like, you know, journalists tend to be real go-getters. Yeah. Were, we're like A-plus in school mm-hmm. students who are constantly forced by the nature of the work because there is no, no, no real right answer, oh, only one right answer. It was just striving. Journalists strive. But but because of the nature of the work, have difficulties getting access to sources, difficulties having enough time to do our work. You know, we're forced as A students to do B minus and C plus or C minus work. So it's an entire entirely frustrating um, uh, field of uh, endeavor, and yet so important mm-hmm. because when we when we tell when we reveal things that people don't know, or we give people perspective that people don't have, you know, all it does it can change the world. And and we only need the example of the coverage of the civil rights movement to yeah. know that that is true. And there are so many of those examples. So, But how do we get it wrong? How do we keep getting it wrong? And it's been gotten wrong throughout the history of journalism. But once in a while, and with proper um, attitude uh, towards the work, it is, um, it is right, en- it, it gets so right enough that it can be Really important and really good. There's a, it's like a striving to tell people the truth, mm. and and what I mean, right enough, is that it's so hard to get to the truth, right? Yeah. But the truth is never subjective. Mm. The truth is always objective. Mm. It, and there's no. My my son said, well, whose truth are we talking about? And I say to him, absolute truth, objective yeah. truth. That's the goal. Yeah. And do we get it? No. Do we strive for it? Yes. And and yes, people. Um, struggle with objectivity. All people have opinions. Mm -hmm. But objectivity is a muscle. It's a muscle that I know exists because I've had it. I've worked it. And when I I work a story and I've worked both sides of a story and Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to make sure that I provide all the bits of important truth so that people at home can make up their own mind and someone asks me, what's your opinion? And I can't and I don't know. Mm -hmm. I know I've reached that place that journalists should always strive for, I think. Which is to try to find the objective truth.
0: It's funny. My my next question for you was going to be advice you can give to journalists in what is, in some ways, a hard time to be a journalist, given the White House's declared war on the media and the rise of fake news, etc. But what you've just said in the last few minutes is perfect advice for folks, uh, for for journalists to use and just kind of keep on trucking. You put
1: your head down. Yes. It's not about you. Yes. If you want to go into journalism because you want to be popular, forget it. You're on the wrong thing. Go mm-hmm. be an actress or a singer mm-hmm. or a, you know, go do something else. Yeah. We are in a service job. Our job is to help people. Our job is to help people with good information. And we make mistakes doing that all the time. It's just kind of, like I said, it's not like there's one answer. It's not two plus two is, equals four. You know, we we it requires judgment. Nobody comes out of J School knowing how to be a journalist. Nobody, not me, yeah. not anybody. It's yeah. about the mistakes you make that teach you mm-hmm. how to be better. And it's about the judgment that eventually you glean, that, that you get that makes you better. And, and then eventually you have this judgment. And this judgment... It will still make you uh, make some mistakes, but boy, you start to lessen those mistakes. You have fewer and fewer and fewer mistakes. And you know what? You don't want to make mistakes
0: because credibility lost is never. Never regained.
1: Ever fully
0: regained. Yeah. Well, you know, and there are other news events that tarnish the profession as well. Uh, You know all about this, but you know, watching the Me Too movement unfold, it has knocked down quite a few very prominent male journalists, one of whom you've worked with before. And I wonder every day how I, as a journalist, go about being part of rebuilding the trust that we want our listeners and, and viewers to have with us when we know that some of the leaders in the field were doing some pretty crappy stuff.
1: You know, I, I don't know if I... Quite see it that way. I okay. mean, I hear you, and yeah. I and I respect that, yeah. and I I actually, um, you know. Maybe you're taking on too much of that, and I, maybe in that way you, you ought to be respected even more for that. But, but the way I look at it is that um, this thing that you're bringing up is a—because yeah. it's not just in media. Uh, those are high-profile faces, but, but it's also obviously in Hollywood, but it's also in factories. It's also yeah. in plants. It's also in small businesses. It's also all across America in every field that exists— I believe it's in in the investment community. I believe it's in every field that exists, because we have a chronic imbalance of power. You know, we're talking about generally men in positions of power in the workplace who are abusing that power and using that power to create unjust power plays that hurt men and women, yeah. and 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 in a way that causes those workers who have not as powerful to feel that they have to do something to, to keep their jobs, to, to, to rise in their positions. And sometimes this is verbal harassment. Sometimes it's physical harassment. But in many ways, these, these harassment cases are not about, you know, they're not about somebody being attracted to somebody. Yeah, it's about power. They're about power. Yeah. Okay. So just like, just like rape is about power. Yeah. And so it's a form of bullying. It's a form of keeping women down. It's a form of sidelining
0: mm-hmm. talent. Have you felt that personally?
1: Well, I think every woman has. Every woman I know has. I've I've felt it throughout my career. And it's been verbal. For me, it's been verbal harassment throughout mm-hmm. my career. And I think that we have to move the conversation towards finding a path to creating systematic change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We need to make sure that... And this is not just, to me, about justice. Yeah, It's about... Um, productivity and yeah. talent and yeah. the loss thereof which Lose is bad for our companies and it's bad for our country yeah I think it's patriotic to stand up uh, for uh, the rise of talent for men and women to stand together for 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 this kind of uh, justice yeah there's a phrase in China that you know for the people for a community to truly rise both men and women both have to stand up to raise the sky mm. and if you don't have women joining that fully only half the sky is up, Yeah. And that hurts everyone.
0: Time for another quick break here. When we come back, Ann talks about how she dealt with a tough workplace culture. And yes, we do talk about her time on The Today Show.
2: All of that in a minute. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationery, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earned dollar for dollar. No caps and no catch. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com match cashback match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply.
0: Hey y'all, thank you for listening to It's Been a Minute. Please help us out by telling us what you like and how we can improve this show. Take a short survey. It's anonymous. It's quick. I promise. Go to npr.org slash podcast survey. Just takes a few minutes and you will do all of us at this show a big big favor. Go to npr.org slash podcast survey. Thank you. Let me know if I'm getting too personal, but um, you have spoken uh, about Matt Lauer and the allegations against him and you worked with him closely for a long time, you know, thinking about how we spoke a little bit earlier about how workplace culture can start to create the conditions that would allow someone to be as abusive in their power as Matt Lauer was. Did you see that when you worked with him?
1: Well, uh, you know, I I don't want to be specific okay. about any okay. particular person because obviously we're in a situation where there has been tremendous um pain. Yes. on all sides and especially uh uh by the victims. And I and I as a human being and especially one who, you know, suffered um public humiliation, even though I did nothing wrong oh, yeah, I and, that. and and know what that means. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to be a part of that for anyone else. But I will say that as I and I think that, that many of these workplaces can be uh, halls of mirrors, you know, where, where mm. people can start to kind of sort of buy into what is happening as sort of being normal. And I think that there was a uh, a culture of of verbal mm. um um of, of things being said that were completely uh not appropriate and and uh that people sort of thought that that's what uh,
0: normal was. Was it and, locker room kind of stuff or what?
1: Well, you know, I don't I think that phrase has been uh, uh
0: yeah, weirdly overused. defined.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 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 I would say that um any human being would say that um they were that it was pervasive and it was it it was falls under the
0: phrase, you know, um verbal um, sexual harassment. One of the things I've been thinking about in the aftermath of all these stories coming out, you hear a lot, especially in broadcast journalism, the men that were doing these very bad things, they had assumed these roles in their newsrooms or production companies that kind of made them untouchable. And I kind of think of it as like the talent was also the boss. And so they weren't just the face of the... Show and the one saying the words on screen or on the air, but they also were, like, the executive editor and senior producer. And, like, there's a problem when one person gets to be all of that. And I think that part of the culture that needs to change is understanding that there is the honored talent who has a role, but there's also a boss that is bigger than that talent and can tell the talent no sometimes. Like, I host this show, but I have a boss, that is good, you know, someone to check me. And but some- who's
1: checking the boss? I and mean, yeah, I think yeah, that's the other yeah, question. And, yeah. and how does a, a human a human resources department check that boss? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, I look. I think it's. I think that we we are in an awakening. Yeah. And I always think that you know when we live through a, something, you wanna be able to look back and if your kid or your grandkid asks you what you did or you know how you participated you know um, you want to have a good answer mm-hmm. uh, and this is one of those questions of our time
0: mm-hmm.
1: now that we know now see that's the thing that the, the, there's a responsibility in once knowing you know. yes. once you know what are you gonna do and yeah and now we know
0: taking it back to the show um, if you get an episode of this series, where you get to reunite with someone uh, who was in your life for, for a moment that was pivotal, who would you want to reunite with? Who in your life do you want to connect with that you haven't seen in a long time that meant a lot to you?
1: Well, you know, I, I um, thought about that. Um, um, and I actually went after trying to find uh, a person. It, it was my uh, English teacher mm. who, um, in high school, I, I'm from a poor family and nobody had ever gone to college mm. in the history of my family, uh, except my dad, who was starting college right when I was in high school, you know, he when I was going on the GI Bill after oh, getting wow. out of the Navy. Oh, wow. And this English teacher, you know, when she asked me where I was going to go to college, I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, it wasn't something I even grew up expecting or planning. And mm. I was from a poor family, so it wasn't going to happen, right? So I was didn't even know what I was going to do. Yeah. And she looked at me, and she just said, "You know, this is not going. You know, you you have to go to college." And so she marched me down wow. to the to the office, front office, and she told them to make me apply to a college. I applied to one college. Which college? I applied to the one I graduated from, from the University of Oregon, which okay. is the in-state tuition. I got yeah. scholarships, and I had to work my way through as well. I worked my way the entire time, except the last semester, and uh, and it was really hard. But um, it was like this, like get this girl in college thing, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, and had it happened for my life completely changed, well, I actually tried to find her and I, really? I now heard that she's I, I missed my opportunity uh-huh. because she's gone. and and uh, but you know i I would love to track down her family and and all that and I'd have to go back and 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 I think there's a married name anyway there's a whole 9 yards I'd have to I'd have to start all that work but but I think that um that's the thing I would say to people is don't don't miss your opportunity mm-hmm. you know it it my series is about world changing events but but in all of our lives and everyone listening there is that someone and if you really think about it you know let that person bubble up in your memory and yeah. let yourself and and don't don't regret you know to live without reg- that re- having that regret, and maybe you won't regret it at the end. But but boy, what a joy it would be for that person for you to call him up and say, hey, you know, you did something you may not remember, but boy, it, it affected me positively, and I'll never forget it. And thank you so much. Wow, what a gift to that person. What a gift to that person. And mm. heck. Why not tell that person that? I mean, no, why hold back?
0: Yeah, It's so true. And just hearing you now tell that story, there was an English teacher in my life, uh, my AP English teacher, junior year of high school. Um, I was just, you know, a kid going through school. I could write pretty well. I, I liked English class. But she was the first adult in my life, save for my parents, um, mm. who pulled me aside and said, you're not dreaming big enough. You need to apply to whatever school you want to go to. I'll support whatever you want to do. And she said to me, she's like, you can do anything you want. And it wow. was the first time anyone had really told me that. Yeah. And. You never forget that. No, you, you need to say, we need to all say that, yeah.
1: especially when we see young people. That's what they crave. That's what they absolutely crave. And, and and I think that this is the thing, you know, the idea that she was willing to say that to you, that she was so generous. I don't know why we hold back, you know, yeah. and this and look at what you've done with that. And I hope you find her yeah. and, and, and that she still is alive, that you can find her and thank her. And wow, can you imagine what a gift that would be? For to her just as equal a value is what she said to you is a value to you
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna look her up as soon as we (laughs) leave this interview (laughs) Miss Donahue she meant a lot to me
1: (laughs) awesome yay Miss Donahue
0: well thanks so much and
1: uh, um, I I, I love talking to you and uh, thanks for giving me your ear of course of course
0: thank you so much bye bye Ann Curry thank you for the conversation you can watch her series it's called We'll Meet Again It's out now, and the final episode airs next Tuesday on PBS. And you'll be happy to know I did reach out to my AP English teacher, Miss Donahue, after my chat with Ann Curry, and we're going to reconnect. All right, this Friday we'll be back in your feeds as usual, but for the first time, the show that you'll hear on Friday will be recorded live in front of an audience here at NPR. So excited to meet those that will be in the audience in person if you're coming to the show. For the rest of you, listen up on Friday. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.